0: Hello, and welcome to Modern Law Library. I'm John Malisak, the director of Anchorwick Books, which is the consumer imprint of ABA publishing here at the American Bar Association. You may notice that I am not Lee Rawls, who are you are used to hearing in these podcasts, but I'm very happy to say that uh, starting this month, we will be doing two podcasts a month, and I'll be alternating with Lee going forward. So uh, one a month will be hosted by Lee, as before and uh, the other one every month will be by me to give you a little bit of background here at Anchorwick, uh, we publish kind of an eclectic assortment of legal fiction true crime history business memoir and some narrative nonfiction all of our books have a legal element to them but they're not written to be solely read by lawyers each month here on modern law library I'll be interviewing one of my authors about their books I'm very, very pleased to be launching my very first podcast with best-selling and Harper Lee Prize-winning author Paul Goldstein, whose latest novel, Legal Asylum, a comedy, is out this month and is already getting some terrific reviews. None other than Alan Dershowitz has praised Legal Asylum, saying of it, quote, Paul Goldstein certainly doesn't spare our law schools from his hilarious and scathing humor. You will never view legal education in the same light after you've read Legal Asylum and David Latt of Above the Law writes this biting satire by a longtime law professor offers frightening insights into the modern American legal academy frightening insights indeed welcome paul john good to talk with you how are you today very well thanks good good to talk to you as well so let's uh, let's dig right in here the so legal asylum is is so different from anything that you've written previously for one it's really laugh out loud funny but you know also it's it's extremely topical. What prompted you to sort of change gears here and write a satire about the state of legal education? Well, I have been
1: thinking about this, I will confess for about 50 years from when I first got into into teaching and the idea for writing a novel poking fun at American law schools has been percolating all that time. You know, if you look at any institution, particularly a human institution long enough and uh, 50 years is a long time. The genuinely absurd and eccentric features of that institution tend to jump out at you and just demand to be uh, written about. Law schools are, are no exception. Uh, I had file folders full of Things to say uh, about American law schools drawn from uh, my experience in teaching, and a good number of them surface in legal asylum. Uh, One of the the central themes has to do with the contortions that law school deans and uh, and law school staffs go through in
0: order to raise their perch uh, in the U.S. news rankings every year. Absolutely. And as, as you're a professor at Stanford Law School, you're you know right in the thick of a lot of this. So I have to ask, how have your colleagues responded to the novel? Have you gotten some feedback from them yet? Well, you mean, have they kicked me out of the academy yet? <laughs> uh, not,
1: not yet. I think around a dozen of my colleagues have, have seen the book now. All but two uh, have told me that they thought it was terrific uh, and have actually quoted whole passages to me and kid me about about other elements of it. Those two who remain silent uh, are a mystery uh, to me. I don't know what they're thinking, but I don't want to ask. And I can say that I I gave a copy to a dean at uh, a top five law school just last week and she emailed me that she was reading it on the plane uh, from San Francisco to the East Coast, and her neighbors in the cabin were looking at this woman, otherwise sensible-looking woman, cackling uh, out loud about uh, while she was
0: reading a novel. That's the kind of feedback I'd love to get. Absolutely. That's high praise indeed. So one of the book's many pleasures uh, is experiencing as you mentioned, the various trials and tribulations that, uh, in this particular case, Dean Flowers, the law school dean, um, goes through on her quest to secure, you know, a spot in the U.S. News Top Five. What I find really interesting about her is that she's very much of an anti-hero, and that, you know, while the reader may be kind of shocked and appalled by some of the lengths that she goes to, to uh, you know, achieve her dreams or meet her ambition— one really can't help but root for her. And you as an author obviously have tremendous affection for her. I'm curious to know, Paul, what would you characterize as some of her greatest strengths or some of her greatest assets?
1: Well, you're certainly right to uh, detect my affection for Elspeth for Flowers, certainly a flawed uh, hero. Her greatest strength is her incredible willpower, her sense of will, and the, the the thought that anything that she wants to accomplish, she can accomplish all by herself. That also happens to be her greatest weakness. And, you know, if you have a story, and you, if, a particularly a strong story that, that I think Legal Asylum has, you need a strong character to carry it. Uh, and... A self willed character like Elspeth is just perfect because we know what she wants to accomplish and we really don't disagree with her objectives, but we watch her encounter obstacle after obstacle uh, in the way of getting uh, what she wants and overcoming some, not overcoming others. The obstacles grow higher. And Elspeth changes over the course of the book, as do some other characters, uh, but I think part of my affection for her is watching this flawed individual stumble, grasp higher, stumble more, and change in the process. Mm-hmm.
0: She always seems to find a way of landing on her feet, despite yes, she does. whatever circumstance she finds herself in, which is, which is really... It's as admirable, and it's very, very entertaining to uh, to read these uh, various machinations that she goes through. Uh, you know, something else too that really strikes me, Paul, in the character of Dean Elspeth Flowers is how you kind of flip gender stereotypes here. You know, Dean Flowers displays a lot of cunning, endurance. Frankly, a very devil-may-care sort of sexual freedom that seems impervious to really any sort of outside criticism or condemnation. You know, characters that, if you look back through literature, uh, are probably more often associated with more of a masculine archetype. But then you've got her assistant dean of students, uh, Jimmy Fleener. He's very sensitive. He lacks confidence. Uh, He spends a lot of the novel sort of in the shadow of his almost larger-than-life boss while really struggling to find his voice. Was this gender reversal a conscious decision? Is there a particular point that you're trying to make with these characters? Well, I don't know, John, that there's a real...
1: Point there. It certainly was conscious. Uh, I thought it would be fun mm-hmm. to flip the usual uh, stereotypes. Although happily, strong women leaders are becoming more and more common uh, in fiction, and, and Elspeth Flowers certainly fits fits in that category. But you know, part of the uh, of the fun of writing this this book was flipping a number of stereotypes and. To see what happened, uh, some worked, some didn't. The ones that didn't work, or at least I hope, the ones that didn't work, all went to the cutting room floor. They're not in the book, uh, but the ones that work, like Elspeth, are are very much there. You know, if there's a point to it, uh, there, well, actually, there may be a couple. One is Elspeth certainly does represent within the context of this book my notion that women are generally a heck of a lot smarter than men. And second, and Elspeth herself makes this observation: all men are eleven-year-old boys. And you combine, you know, Elspeth's willfulness, her smarts, and the fact that all men probably are eleven-year-old boys, easily manipulated by her, and you get some really interesting uh, little stories in the book.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I mean that's that's one thing I think of everybody in this book, Dean Flowers, really comes out looking better, I think, than almost any of them. Certainly the male characters. You Who know, I like how you've described them as sort of 11-year-old boys. Um, you know, it's certainly a very apt description for these guys, um, which makes for very entertaining reading. Now, switching gears a little bit here, Paul, I-, I know that we had talked about a passage in the novel that, you know, you feel might Best exemplify, you know, the novel as a whole. Uh, certainly, the character of Elspeth Flowers and uh, and her relationship with her assistant dean Jimmy Fleener. Um, I know that we've selected a uh, a passage uh, from fairly early in the novel. It's uh, just to kind of give a bit of a setup here for the listener. Dean Flowers is meeting with her staff, and she's really explaining to them you know, what the school needs, what they need to do to get lifted in that uh, all-important U.S. News Law School rankings. So why don't uh, you go ahead, Paul, and, you know, share with us this passage, and let's, uh, let's discuss it for a little bit.
1: Great. Thanks for setting that up, John. Yes, this uh, comes at the end of a scene in which the dean, uh, Dean Flowers, has been talking with Jimmy Fleenor, her associate dean, and her admissions officer, and her placement officer on the uh, things they need to go through to boost state's ranking, to catapult it into uh, the U.S. News Top 5, she's now alone with Fleenor, who is Jimmy, who is still unconvinced about the desirability of going through these contortions. And she's got the whiteboard, and she has a pointer, and she has the 12 criteria that U.S. News looks at in their rankings. She hadn't yet talked about the first and second. So here is the dean talking to, to Jimmy to try to convince him to get on board with the program. The dean grabbed the pointer and with it wrapped the first entry on the whiteboard, reputation among lawyers and judges. Do you have any idea what we're up against? How do you think judges know what to answer when U.S. News sends them their survey? They ask their law clerks. If they let their clerks write their judicial opinions for them, don't you think they're going to listen to what their clerks have to say about which schools are the best in the country? And what law schools do judges hire clerks from? yale stanford harvard columbia and chicago the top five and what schools do you think these recent graduates of yale stanford harvard columbia and chicago tell their judges are the best and lawyers the dean said do you think lawyers know anything more about law schools than judges they know less all they know is what they read in the newspaper the new york times the wall street journal but where do the times and the journal go for information about law schools. U.S. News. So these lawyers read in the paper that Yale is number one and Stanford is number two and Harvard is number three, and guess what they write down when they get a survey asking them which are the best law schools in the country? Are you beginning to see the problem we face? The dean didn't wait for an answer, but dropped the pointer to the next line. Reputation among academics. Law professors, they actually survey law professors. They, she started to say that U.S. News had turned the asylum over to the inmates, but the thought of the spires across the hill flashed across her mind like a warning light. Did they ever call you Jimmy? What schools do you think the largest number of law professors graduated from? Do you want me to give you those five names again? Some of them may vote for the school where they managed to land a job, but you can be sure that every one of them gives their top vote to alma mater. How many state graduates do we have in teaching? Other than you, Jimmy, what, maybe two or three? That's it. Yale has hundreds. Jimmy says, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, Ellie, why it's so important that we get into the top five? The tremble in Jimmy's voice betrayed his understanding that this was heresy. So important that we cheat and lie to get there? Elspeth realized that she had lost her hold on Jimmy. Do you think your Ivy Leaguers will ever come to state, if we're not in the top five, that their parents will let them turn down Harvard and Yale and Stanford to study the Blue Book under the great Professor Flenor? At that point, Elspeth tries to divert Jimmy from his particular crusade and turn him toward hosting the ABA accreditation committee that has just arrived at the law school's door. Since you are the one faculty member, Jimmy, who has extensive experience with ABA visits, I've decided to butt out of this one and let you take complete charge. Would that work for you? Sure, Jimmy said, but with no enthusiasm. Drop everything else and give it your full attention. It would be quite a story if in the same year we make the U.S. News Top 5, we lose our ABA accreditation the line didn't come out sounding as witty as when the senator said it.
0: Thank you, Paul. And that right there, to me, really speaks to the essence of what this book is about, that urgency, that importance, that uh, reliance that these law schools have to get into that top five. Um, But it also speaks to what I feel is really one of the most satiric elements uh, of the novel— and that's your portrayal of the ABA Accreditation Committee. Uh, you've obviously been through this accreditation, reaccreditation process before. These committee members are really painted with a, a broadly comic yet unabashedly pointed brush. By satirizing this process, what are you actually saying about the accreditation process, Paul?
1: Well, actually, not Anything that would outrage people at the ABA, not because I wouldn't want to, uh, I would love to. Two of the three characters on the visiting committee are, you're absolutely right, truly comic characters getting themselves uh, into fixes that it, it causes some pain to get them out of. The third character, Howard Littlefield, the chair of the committee, is actually an extremely sympathetic and sensible guy who is another one who grows in interesting ways across the novel. But you know, the accreditation process itself, the ABA accreditation process, doesn't have all that much to be satirized. It's sort of a basic test. Not, you know, not many schools lose their accreditation. You have to be, you know, truly in the pits to lose your accreditation. I don't know how much more these visits add to the, the written submissions that the ABA gets, you know, the coming in and kicking kicking the tires of law schools. But fundamentally the accreditation process is strikes me as pretty pretty sound. One can find find flaws, but as I say it's it's pretty sound. When you contrast that with the US news ranking process, then you get something truly to satirize, to see the rather sober, level-headed, objectively-based ABA uh, standards measured against the the subjective criteria employed, the the questionable methodologies employed uh, in the U.S. news rankings. And you think that there are actually people out there, large numbers of law school applicants who are gonna rely on a top 10 list or a top 50 list compiled according to who knows what kind of criteria, they're gonna invest less time in studying the law school to which they, uh, they go than they would, you know, investigating an automobile uh, that they're about to buy. So the satire, if anything, is not of U.S. news for running a profit center, which apparently these rankings are. Uh, nor is it so much toward law schools for getting into these contortions to meet it. The real problem is with people who are relying so heavily on this questionable basis, which leaves the A.B.A. looking very sober-minded uh, at the bottom. Of at all. So
0: we're just running out of time, but I do want to ask you, Paul, another question here, uh, specifically about the title, Legal Asylum. Yeah. You know, obviously, to those who have read the book, uh, it's a play on the juxtaposition between you know, legal academia, for lack of a better term, and uh, the insane asylum that sort of neighbors the school on the, you know, the adjacent property. But is there a, a deeper metaphor here? And how, how did you come to this particular title?
1: Well, the, you know, I love titles that are both, at the same time, evocative and descriptive. I'm sure you've read Anthony Doerr's wonderful novel, All the Light We Cannot See. You know, that's a title that, that describes the book, but it is also terrifically evocative. That's what I tried to do with, with Legal Asylum. As you said, there is a, an insane asylum nearby that does figure into uh, the story, but the aim of the title as well is to evoke the sheltered craziness uh, that sometimes passes for, for legal education at, at this particular state law school.
0: Terrific. Thanks again, Paul, for chatting with us today about this very entertaining, funny, but very, very insightful and topical novel, Legal Asylum. As I said, uh, Legal Asylum is available this month on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Shop ABA here at the American Bar Association. Is there some way that our listeners can get in touch with you or is there somewhere in social media they can go to, to find out more about the book? Sure, John. if somebody wants to to tweet me, I'm at, at p goldstein
1: novel uh, that's my my twitter handle paul goldstein dot net is my website. They can find out more about the uh, the book there and thank you very much. Uh, it really was a pleasure talking with you
0: absolutely, likewise. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in today. Please tune back in later this month for my colleague, Lee Rawls. He'll be back with Modern Law Library, and then I will be back on again uh, next month with a new book and a new author. Take care. Thank you.